guys. Thanks for tuning in to episode 18 of Share Crime. I'm Kenzie. And I'm Amy. And this week, we are concluding the two-part series in the HBO documentary, Who Killed Garrett Phillips? The question posed in the title is never answered, and that alone is super frustrating. However, we get to see the justice system work in the way it was designed to work. Frustrating to say the least. (sighs) Seriously. And on that note, what are we drinking? Because I feel like it's necessary. (laughs) Absolutely. This week, we are drinking another Vizzy hard seltzer. Yeah. And this week, it is the hint of pineapple mango flavor. Very excited for this. Tropical. Literally, I feel like I'm going to be in a, or I should be on a beach. (laughs) Yeah. We should all be on a beach right now. It's freezing It's so cold and it's just not even fun. I know. Let's pop them. All right. I liked it. I liked it. I'll take it. Mm. Oh, they're so refreshing. I just love them. Mm. Love them, love them. It hits your lips. (laughs) It's so good once it hits your lips. (laughs) So part two starts off with basically some reporters kind of in the background. And they're zooming in on Parrishville. It's March of 2012. So remember... Garrett passed away in October of 2011. And the reporters are basically just saying that six months have passed without any justice for Garrett. Now, Brian Phillips, the uncle of Garrett, comes on and he's saying that at this point, they're offering a $40,000 reward kind of as a family Mm -hmm. in finding the person who's responsible for this. So they made up all these signs, these justice for Garrett signs, and they're posting them all over town. And they're selling each sign for $7. So $7 will buy you a sign and $7 pays for a new sign. Yep. So it's a wash. But he said most people are giving them like $10. So whatever they come across that's extra, they're throwing into that reward fund. Right. And he says that, you know, at this point, he just wants to see Nick Hillary go to prison. He is convinced with every fiber of his soul. Their whole family and I think that whole community It's been so one-sided against Nick the entire time that no one else is seeing anything different. So I think Uh that whole community feels that it's Nick Hillary and he needs to pay for it. Yeah. Now, Marissa Vogel, the neighbor who had heard all of the commotion inside of the apartment that night, says that, you know, at first it seemed like a slam dunk case that Nick was responsible for Garrett's death. But then it was thrown out at one point, for not having enough evidence. So it kept flip-flopping. So she felt like they were being told at one point that, yeah, this for sure is him, but then there's that problem of there not being enough evidence, which then is contradictory. Well, and we see all the shady cop work. And that totally has a play in all of this, and it makes sense. So to her, as an outsider looking in, she's like, what the heck is going on here? Yes, Why is this happening? And why is it such a flip-flop all the time between he's for sure guilty, we have all this evidence, and then we don't really have anything against him. Yeah, she said a lot of the evidence that they were hearing even sounded conflicting. Right. So it was like, what do we believe? Exactly. And I think as citizens in the world that we live in, we all feel this way every single day (laughs) with shit that we're reading. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Ian Fairley comes back on. He was that assistant coach and friend of Nick Hillary. And he says that in May of 2012, he actually leaves Clarkson University and begins coaching in Buffalo. So he immediately, once he gets there, 
notices tons of Justice for Garrett signs. Yeah. And he said, this is kind of weird because I did a little bit of a Google like map yeah, thing. Yep. And it's about a four and a half hour drive up I-90 West. So it's not nearby. Yeah. So he just said, I feel like these signs were put here specifically for me. And someone came up and put them there. Somebody had to because mm-hmm. they're just not showing up. I mean, Potsdam is a very small community. Granted, it's kind of also surrounded by other small communities. But again, this is four and a half hours away. Right. And they're in New York. So this isn't the only murder that's happened. Nick Hillary says that he feels the signs meant let's get Nick Hillary for this, which I wrote. I can't completely agree, but I kind of get what you're saying. Yeah. I feel like in a lot of the documentary, one thing that I have to kind of roll my eyes at a little bit is that it does feel like Nick almost undermines the fact that, yes, a 12-year-old child died. Yeah. And that the family is hurting and they're, yes, they're pointing fingers at him and they're it's probably without much evidence. But at the same time, like he's a father, he should kind of know how somebody else would feel. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's hard for him because everyone is gunning for him to spend the rest of his life in prison for something he didn't do. Yeah. And I don't think it's because he doesn't care about Garrett or that he he died. I mean, I, I don't think that's it at all. I think he had a lot of sadness and concern right when it happened. But then when all the eyes started peering directly in his direction, even though there wasn't much evidence, he's still getting indicted and he's sitting in prison and they're trying to do everything they can to keep him in prison, even though they know they don't have enough evidence to keep him there. Yeah. Things just start to get fishy. And then he's he's only worried about his own life at that point. Oh, so, for sure. And I think that's probably why he comes off that way. But I felt the same way that yeah. it was always not negatively talking about it, but it, it felt a little negative looking at it from Garrett's side of yeah. it. It felt very one-sided. Yeah, for which, sure. Which at the same time, I mean, in the entire case, it was very one-sided. So yeah, that's why I wrote like, I can't agree completely, but I get it. Yeah, absolutely. So then Ian also says that in January of 2013, he had stopped working in Buffalo. Yep. So he started May of 2012, ended January 2013. So that's really not that long. No, not at all. A little over six months. And he says that at that point, he went back home to stay with his parents briefly in Owego, New York. And he says that as he's pulling, you know, into the town, he's noticing justice for Garrett signs in his parents' neighborhood. I would be freaked out. I would actually feel like I'm being stalked by someone. How do these people know where he's going? Well, yeah, that's the one thing. It's like, okay, if you're moving jobs. How does someone from a small town that you used to be at know where you are? Like, that is creepy. They are keeping way too close of tabs on you. Or they know someone that knows you that's keeping tabs. No, thank you. Yeah, I didn't really like it either. No. So Natasha Haverty, now remember, she was a reporter at the North Country Public Radio Station. So she says that Potsdam to Owego is about a two and a half hour drive. So when these start showing up on Ian Street, like... It's weird. And like you said, it's creepy. And Ian even goes as far to say that it sounds or that it feels very desperate. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, again, they're kind of attacking Ian. Like his story doesn't add up. Yeah. He's lying to the police. He needs to come forward and make sure that he doesn't forget about Garrett and the lie he told. And I don't believe he was lying at all. I I don't either. He has like proof on his phone that he was on the phone with someone. He walked in and yeah. 
It's a lot. That would freak me out. Yeah, it would freak me out too. And I wonder, because he left Clarkson and went off to Buffalo, I wonder if people were like, ooh, what's he running from? What's he hiding sure, from? Sure. Even though they don't actually say it, but I mean, they don't specifically say it, but we all know that Nick Hillary was not allowed to go back to his coaching job once all of this yeah. happened, which I'm going to then venture out to say that maybe Ian was also let go or just was also kind of like ostracized. Yep, there's a and had to find somewhere else over to go. him. Mm-hmm. That's why I assumed he left and went to Buffalo. But like I said, they don't specifically say that. We then see some on-screen text that says Nick Hillary has five children with Stacia Lee, whom he lived with before dating Tandy. He is unemployed at this time and takes care of the kids full time. Now, Nick Hillary says that he basically feels like he's on house arrest. He is ostracized from the community, but he hopes that God helps to keep his kids strong through the whole thing because they're still out there. They're still going to school. They're still hearing rumors and maybe being taunted from other kids in class. Especially the younger ones. You know, I mean, that's that's what's so hard. They don't even really know what's going on. Oh, you they, know, yeah, they have no idea. That's the hard thing. Yeah. And you know what it's like when parents talk too much or feed their children mm-hmm. their own opinions. And then those kids are like parrots. They just repeat yep. it. Now, Lisa Marcosha and Manai Tafari, those two friends and attorneys of Nick, says that his life changed when he had left the police station that day after being searched and photographed. Clarkson University didn't want him on campus, and the public considered him guilty immediately. And I wrote down, yeah, it's no longer innocent until proven guilty. It's guilty until proven innocent. I know. It's. And, I believe it's always been that way. And even then, even if you're innocent and you went to court and you're acquitted of the charge— I don't think that leaves people's mind. I don't think it matters. They're still going to believe what they want to believe, regardless of what you actually get charged with. Yeah. Well, and a Google search would show that, too. Right. Because as we know, what goes on the Internet stays on the Internet. So any report or any article ever written about the situation is going to have the word murder tied to Nick Hillary. I know. I I feel so bad for him. And I, I can't believe he lived there that long like during uh, yeah, all this i can't believe around. he stayed there i mean i wouldn't could you, have could you imagine the looks just going to the grocery store like yeah it, it's such a small town that you know a lot of people there you've yep. seen them around town before they all know about this case you're a black man in predominantly white community you stick out like a sore thumb anyway and now right. they all think you're a murderer a child murderer yeah oh my gosh i can't imagine what he lived through every day i mean it, it's horrifying to think of. Yeah. And remember, this is all prior to the way we all live now with COVID looming above us where we're able to make a quick order and drive through and pick it up or have it delivered to our house. He had to still go run these errands. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, one of the reporters at the Spectrum News Station even goes on to say that Nick Hillary had filed a notice of claim due to being wrongly tied to the death of Garrett and for injuries and damages sustained during any of the investigation, which include things like the false arrest, illegal detention being, you know, kept at the police station, illegal search and seizure, emotional distress, and defamation. Lisa Marcosha and Manai Tafari say that it's always been bigger than just Nick. So it's more so about their justice system as a whole. Yeah, and the reform of the justice system. Right. So they've been trying to stick by him to fight the good fight. They knew that this wasn't just Nick. This was more than that. 
And Nick says that the civil case was the initial step in the process, and he hopes that it will slowly help to erase the damage to his legacy and reputation. But I don't think that's ever going to happen. We next get some on-screen text that states, The Potsdam Police Department retains civil defense attorney Tom Mortati to review the notice of claim for Nick Hillary's civil suit. We get to meet Tom Mortati. He stated that the first that he had actually heard of this case was in early January of 2012. And the first thing he said he does was a Google search. Yep. He finds out it's a murder case. And if he decides to go forward with the civil lawsuit with the Potsdam Police Department, that his team will go after Nick to show that he did commit this crime. Yeah. And it makes sense. I mean, he is for the Potsdam Police Department. He is defending them. He doesn't really care about Nick at all, right? He's trying to make sure that they either don't have to pay him anything or it can get dismissed or whatever, right? He's, He's trying his best to to be in favor of the police department. Sure. Well, that's his client. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They're paying him, of yeah. course. Now, Lisa Marcosha comes back and they had taken Nick's DNA right away. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, that's one of the first things that they wanted from him. And he really didn't have any reservations about it. Uh-uh. He gave it right away. He didn't need to be concerned. Right. Right. And their conclusions were that Nick Hillary can neither be included nor excluded as a possible contributor. Right. So, There was no match on his DNA or fingerprints because the DA never indicted him on that fact. And that's what Nick even said. He said the DA knew that there was nothing there because if there was, he would have for sure been indicted on that. Absolutely. But he never was. Yeah. We get some more on-screen text that states that the New York State Police Crime Lab orders a second test of Nick Hillary's DNA against the DNA obtained from Garrett's fingernail scrapings. The test, using software called True Allel, found no statistical support for a match. Okay, shouldn't that be the end of it? I wrote, in my opinion, move on. Like, twice now. Twice. It, it states that there's no statistical proof that it could be his DNA or that it is his DNA. Twice. Not one time. You already did it twice. Now, you're still going to go after him? I know. There's someone else's DNA under his fingernails? And you're still going after the person you've tested DNA on twice that shows it wasn't him. It's absolutely infuriating. It is. And they have mentioned multiple times in this documentary that it was a minuscule amount of DNA found under his fingernails. They at one point even mentioned how he would have scratched Nick Hillary's face so gently as to not even leave a scratch. And I'm like, what? so... It just Uh, doesn't make sense to me. No. Okay. If you're struggling with someone, you're not barely scratching at them. Right. You know what I mean? Like pawing at them. Unless the perpetrator is pulling away as you're trying to scratch and you just barely graze. Maybe I can see that. But you're trying your damnedest to get this person away from you. And you'll do whatever you can. Kick, scream, scratch, whatever. Right? None of it made sense. Well, and why wouldn't you then, like, scratch at their arms or something? You know what I mean? Like, because in this case, he was strangled. Right. Why wouldn't you have been ripping apart his arms? Right. 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 I I feel like that would even just be almost like a reflex. And we saw no evidence of that. Nothing. On those photographs that the police took of Nick Hillary. Right. So W.T. Eckert comes back. He's that reporter from the Watertown Daily Times. And he's like, 
why wasn't there any forensic evidence like DNA or fingerprints at the scene, right? It seems a little odd. He also mentions that when Mary Rain ran for the office of the DA and was looking for advancements in the case, she actually blamed Nicole Duvet, who was the current DA, for this case staying unsolved. So she blamed it all on her and was actually using it for political gain. Uh huh. She was using Garrett's case to hopefully win. And it, ugh, I didn't like her either. I could not stand her. I also <laughs> wrote down at one point because they show a picture of her. I'm like, why does she look so much like Eileen Warnos? <laughs> literally looks like could be her sister. I'm just like, you look yep. like a serial killer yourself. <laughs> like, settle down, brush your damn hair, try to look professional because you don't. It was hard. It was hard. Oh, that's funny. We next meet William J. Fitzpatrick. He is the district attorney for Onondaga County. He had actually contacted Nicole Duvet to tell her that the murder of 12-year-old Garrett was becoming a political issue. And, of course, that's distasteful. It doesn't look good. And she sent him a summary of the case so he could get to know it a little bit more and see if he could help in any way. Yeah, because he didn't know anything about it. Right. And immediately he said he wondered why Nick wasn't behind bars. He thought it was a closed case. Like, he knew exactly who it was. He should be in jail. Yeah. Well, He stated that this case could go to the Mutual Assistance Committee of the State DA's Association, which is a panel that he had actually put together of experienced homicide prosecutors to look over the case to try and solve it. Yeah. And she declined the offer. Yeah, she wasn't interested. No, she wasn't at all. And he doesn't know why. No one really understands why. Uh, I do. Because their fucking case didn't hold water. (laughs) There was no... True evidence. And when he says, like, why didn't they put this guy in handcuffs? My question was, why would he be? There is nothing that substantiates him needing to be arrested. And they tried and tried and tried to find more evidence. So, yeah, that's exactly why. Yeah. We learned that Mary Rain actually had to defend her own record. And we learned that she resigned as county public defender in 2011, citing overwhelming caseload. Now, that's a public defender yep. position. And W.T. Ecker comes back and says, how will she be able to handle the workload as lead prosecutor in St. Lawrence County if she can't even handle work as a public defender? It didn't make sense at all. No. But guess what? She ends up winning the election. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it had to do with Garrett's case. Yeah, she was very passionate about Garrett's case and wanting to solve it. And I think the community was so ready for that to be done that they sided with her. Well, yeah, she even told Tandy that Garrett would be her top priority when she came into office on January 1st of 2014. Yep. That is when she contacted William Fitzpatrick, that district attorney in Onondaga County, and took him up on the review with the Mutual Assistance Committee. Yep. I don't like her at all. I don't either. I don't. I feel like she is just such a, like a lazy snake is what she seems like to me. That is the word I was thinking of was snaky. She yes. Is, she is, ugh, she just seems icky. And then we find out that she is just a shitty person yeah. at the end too. So it's like, well. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. It all comes full circle. It so does. And it's so (laughs) great. Yeah. I I watched the whole thing just for that. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Me too. Tom Mortati, who, again, is the Potsdam police defense attorney for Nick's civil case. Yep. States that, you know, 
there is no smoking gun, as people like to say. Clearly, we know that. We're aware. We see that. Now, the biggest bit of information is the gym security cameras at the Potsdam High School. That is the biggest piece of evidence that the Potsdam police have. Yeah. Yeah. That's like their main focus. Yes, because the first thing that they saw was a vehicle that looked similar to Nick's coming into the parking lot. Same color, same make, same model. Yeah. Now, Ian Fairley states that Gary Snell and Mark Murray show up at his door to show him this video. And they keep saying to him, well, the timeline isn't right. You know, it's unedited. And I was just like, what? Why are you even saying that? Yeah. And he said that they mentioned it multiple times, which to me just seems really fucking fishy. I don't know. It seems like they did something with it. And they want him to think that they didn't. Yeah, a little bit. I didn't like it. So what we see is the gym lot camera on October 24th, 2011. The timestamp is 4.47 p.m. to 4.53 and 15 seconds p.m. Yep. Ian acknowledges that, yeah, it looks like Nick's car in the parking lot. Then there's a clip of Garrett kind of skateboarding past on the sidewalk, past like a line of cars that are there to pick up kids from after school activities is what it looks like to me. The next clip is Nick leaving but it's not the final cut. So he's leaving the parking lot, but they say this isn't the final cut to him. What does that mean? I don't know. They're so fucking weird. So then they say, if Nick was leaving the parking lot, which direction should he be going to go home? And Ian's like, well, he should make a right to go home because he's like right there. His apartment's right there, not far. But instead, he makes a left. And I wrote, so... I know they make this is one of the biggest points that they make during the trial. Oh, this is like their only thing that they have. This would be their like, quote unquote, smoking gun. Yeah. During the trial. Yeah. Because he makes a left and not a right. Ian feels that they were just making up a story, but that the video did not prove a thing. I know. I agree. Mm -hmm. It didn't prove shit. I'm sorry. You're in a small town and he's a soccer coach. He has kids. He has an older, like two older kids that could have been in high school at the time. Why is this a weird thing that he pulls into the high school parking lot and then leaves and takes a left? I know. Sorry. And he could have just been listening to a podcast and wanted to hear the last couple minutes of it. Yeah. How many times have you driven an extra, like, you know, out of the way to like listen to something or like finish your song or whatever? Well, and again, I think it's just their way of stating that, well, that was the way to Garrett's house. Yeah. So it just makes sense, right? That can't be a coincidence that he'd go that way. It's like, you can only go right or left. (laughs) Like, what are you talking about? This It's not like this town is huge. No. You can get places in a vehicle pretty quick. So even if he took a little bit of a longer route because maybe he had somewhere to stop quick, what does it matter? They really, really hung on this for a long time. Yep. And I don't know about you, but there's been times where I've pulled out of somewhere and I'm like, oh, maybe I should run over here quick and I'll make mm-hmm. that turn. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to. Now I'm, I, I wish I would have gone the other way. Yep. Like, it's not crazy. No, it's not. And it's not just completely out of like the norm for this to happen. I just thought they were really putting all of their eggs in one basket that this basket had holes all over it. That's all they had. Yeah. Now, Mark Murray, that lead investigator believes that this video proves 100% that Nick followed Garrett home that day. Of course he would. He has no other way of thinking. I can't stand him. I cannot stand when he talks. (laughs) There's so many people I can't stand him. I know. (laughs) Because then Mary Rain comes in and she says, well, 
You know, there is no license plate that we can see. You know, we didn't know who was driving the car or who else was in the car right. because it's so far back. And she's like, you know, this isn't like CSI where you can scan in and see the picture right, of the person no. driving yep. or, you know, scan the license plate. <laughs> like all you see is a car that looks like his. Right. That's it. Next, we're at the civil suit on January 20th of 2014. Now, Manai Tafari for Mr. Oral Nicholas Hillary versus Thomas Mortati of Burke, Scalermo, Mortati, and Hurd for the defendants of Ed Tischler and Mark Murray. So Mortati starts off with asking Nick about his day on October 24th, 2011. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, in the interrogation room, Nick was not having any of that. No. And now he has to answer questions because he's... Honest, he's, you know, under oath. He's in a sworn deposition at this point. Yep. So Nick says, you know, he typically gets up at like 6.30 a.m. They ask him, what kind of vehicle do you drive? He says, it's a Honda CRV 2009 light blue. Mr. Mortati is surprised that he's even talking, but he's very pleased about it. Now, when asked why he went to the high school, Nick says he went there to watch a soccer game. He waited in the parking lot for the rain to break. But when it didn't, he just decided to go home. Mm -hmm. Okay, I don't see anything weird with that. I know. And there was multiple times in this documentary that they mentioned that there was rain that night. So I don't know. It's not out of the realm of possibility. Now, Nick puts himself in that car at that time at the high school. So he's not hiding it. No, he's not. He's stating, yes, that was me. Nick says that he opened up because he had nothing to hide at this point. Right. Right. He had a stenographer right there writing down every word he was saying and what everybody else was saying. Yeah. It was all going to be public record. And he had his attorney there. So he knew that Manai was going to basically tell him to shut up if he was about to say something mm-hmm. that he didn't need to be saying. Throughout the whole thing, I didn't even write this down, but you're constantly hearing Manai kind of saying like objection to like every question. Yeah. And Tom Mortati even mentions at one point, like he kind of rolls his eyes and he's like, it was unbelievable. Like, and I mean, (laughs) I get it. I get it. But at the same time, like he's flexing his attorney muscles in there. Well, yeah, because he's like relevance. What's the relevance of this question? Right. You know, what does it have to do with anything? And Nick still answered. Yeah. I mean, but he's like, that's just what you do when you're in a sworn deposition. You make sure to object to these things because you can. Yeah. You have the right to. Yeah. You have the right to. Yeah. Flex your muscles while you can. That's right. So we're back to the questions, and Nick states that he claims he didn't know that seven seconds before he had left the school parking lot, Garrett skateboarded out of the school parking lot. So we see that that clip of Garrett skateboarding. Seven seconds later, Nick leaves the school parking lot. Right. Nick claims he never saw Garrett, like never noticed Okay. And I don't see that that would be weird. But to again, not see there's him. like sports going on. It's an after school thing. There's probably kids. There's cars all over from the, yeah, video the parking we can lot see. was full. So it's like there's a kid skateboarding. You wouldn't even notice it. Like it wouldn't even be something that if you're sitting in your car and a skateboarder goes by you, it wouldn't even be something you would notice. You're in a school parking lot. There's kids all over doing things. So, right. again, it's just but again, this is what they had. He was seven seconds behind Garrett. Right, in his vehicle. So uh, that's all they had. Right, that's all they had. Now, Nick says that he didn't follow Garrett out of the parking lot, but yes, he did make a left out of the parking lot, even though the fastest way home would have been a right. Mm -hmm. He says that if he had made a left, 
he could have possibly been going to the assistant coach's place, Ian Fairley, because he went there often to check in about things. Mm-hmm. He says that he doesn't recall if he did that that day, which to me, I was like, why did you say that when we have already been told that that's where you were? Right. That part, I was like, "Ugh, what do you mean you don't recall if you went there that day? I don't know. Honestly, I didn't even catch that until you just said that. Yeah. That was the one part where I was like, oh, shit. Did he just, like, shoot himself in the foot? Yeah. I, wow. I, I honestly, that didn't even cross my mind. But now it's like, holy shit. Yeah. yeah. Seriously. Yeah. And, of course, like, the DA is all over that. Because, you know, how do you not recall something? How do you not recall? Honest to God, I would be in prison for something I didn't do. I don't remember <laughs> shit. I, I honestly, I, I don't remember things at all. My daughter has to remember things for me. She'll well, be like, remember? That's why we have children. Yeah. She's like, remember you did this. Remember we went here. I'm like, oh, shit, that's right. Yep. Like, I don't keep receipts. I don't even ask for receipts half the time. I like, don't either. I, I'm like, nope, just keep it. Because I'm just going to throw it away anyway. I Or it's just garbage in my vehicle or in my purse. You yep. know what I mean? That just takes up space. And I'm like, wow. I think I think I need to reconsider <laughs> what I'm doing here. Just always pay with your card because then there is a digital receipt out there. There we go. That's the there key. Don't I, use cash. We never use cash for anything. Only so. cash for illegal activities. There yes. we go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so we get some on-screen text that says, On May 12th of 2014, District Attorney Mary Rain presents evidence to a grand jury to secure an indictment against Nick Hillary for murder in the second degree. It is the highest charge for this crime, and it carries a sentence of 25 years to life. Three days later, the grand jury returns an indictment, and Nick Hillary is arrested. Now, Nick maintains that he is 100% innocent as he's being arrested. Mm -hmm. There's video footage of it. The St. Louis County Correctional Facility is then shown, and we find out that Nick had been held for 70 days in jail. Every hearing came with new, quote-unquote, evidence that would require further exploration, which would add more and more time to his sitting around. And he basically said that the experience itself made him even more determined to get out and never come back. Hell yeah. We then see some on-screen text that says in July of 2014, Nick Hillary was released on bail. And then there's footage of him at that time at home with his younger boys, basically just trying to get back to life. The sad thing is... That shit probably happens all the time mm-hmm. where things get pushed, citing whatever reason, you know, it's horrible. Yeah. Horrible. I'm glad he wasn't in there longer because 70 right. days, if you look at it in the scheme of your life, isn't that long, but it's nowhere you want to be. Oh, could you imagine when you're being somewhere for like nine weeks like that? Just no. like in limbo. Especially when you're innocent. I mean, that right. that's the whole thing, too. Like that is frustrating, but thankfully it wasn't longer because- right. Who knows? It, it could have been longer. But the judge basically said, enough's enough. Like, yeah. we, we can't do this. Like, you have to give him bail. He's not gone to trial yet. Like, yeah. he's not convicted of anything yet. You have to let him go. And you haven't given us any proof that right. he is 100% the guy who did this. Right. We get some more on-screen text that states, Shayna K. Hillary is Nick's eldest daughter. She is studying at Clarkson University. We get to meet Shayna K. And... Before this happened, she was super bubbly and outgoing, very friendly, really carefree, right? As you should be in in high school, if that's your personality, of course. But afterwards, 
it almost just changed everything for her because she felt like she had to really pay attention to what she was doing, what she was saying. Anything that she did, any action she made during the day, she had to double check it before she did it because she had eyes on her all over the place, you know? She went from being carefree to walking on eggshells <sighs> all oh, the time. Especially when you're in college. It's like, yuck. You don't want to think about that kind of stuff, you know? No. Ugh, so sad. We get some more on-screen text that states, Shana Kay was a high school student when she testified in front of the grand jury. Shana had actually been with her dad around the time of Garrett's murder. So she had to really get her facts and timing straight. Yeah. And being a high schooler and having to like, account for every second of that day. Oh my gosh. The anxiety one would feel, even if you're telling the truth, you don't want to stumble or accidentally mess up on where you were or what you did or accidentally give one minute wrong or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. They will analyze every single detail you give. Yeah. She had soccer practice after school that day and then went home and her dad was there. And that would mean that Nick would have left his house around 4.35 to 4.40 to go to the high school, where we see him in the high school parking lot. Yeah. Now, Garrett was last seen at the school at 4.52. It should have only taken him about six minutes straight to get to his house when he was on his ripstick. They kind of must have did some sort of analysis on that, right? Sure. And then we also see him passing by a hospital camera, too. So he's caught on a hospital camera, too, briefly. Yeah. Now, on that a little bit, I was like, wouldn't we have also seen Nick's car? I thought the same thing. If he was following him, wouldn't we have seen even a slight bit of him in that camera? Mm -hmm. They never say anything about that. Not once. So that's interesting. Yeah. Nick pulled out of the high school parking lot at 4.53 the 911 call came in at 5.08 from Hunter Market Street. The time of death was around 5.06 conservatively. Yeah. Now, that leaves us with a 13-minute timeline. Yeah. Mary Rain thinks that this is enough time to commit the murder in 13 minutes. I mean, I mean she's not wrong. No, because if, if it's an adult to a child, it would not take that long because your strength is much different. Right. Yeah. And I believe, what is it? I mean, it's like under five minutes to strangle somebody. Yeah. I, if you have enough force. Yeah. And you have to be strong enough to hold it that long, but it's not long. I, yeah. I don't know the logic behind it or or the minutes, but 13 minutes would seem like enough time to do something like I that. I would think right? so. Yeah. Well, and she even accounted for like two minutes for the two neighbors who like heard all of the commotion right. to have stopped, kind of listened and then decided, OK, we need to call the police. Right. Exactly. Yep. She also states, she's like, well, you know, Nick was extremely fit. Like, not only a six-pack, but an eight-pack. I'm like, who the fuck cares? What does abs have to do with anything in this scenario right now? And I'm sorry, but you can be a skinny meth head and have abs because you have no fucking body fat on you. Right. She's an idiot. I I hated that statement. Like she just went on about it. I'm like, who the fuck cares? Like, shut up, move on. That has nothing to do with it. Like, no, it doesn't. Seriously, nothing to do with it. Especially when at the beginning of this, they thought it was kids. Right. Remember? Like, we're forgetting about all of that. We're forgetting about all those conversations because now it's all right at Nick. Oh, yeah. Mary believes that he parked his car. So took a left, parked his car and jogged 
the two blocks to Garrett's house, which she thinks took him 45 seconds. I'm like, okay, where is that logic? I mean, are, are you guesstimating? It's I that mean, it's that eight pack that, I, that makes you jog very quickly. I just, I, she, she, I feel like she's just making stuff up in her head, like what she thinks it would take him to do that. Well, if you look at her, you can tell she's never jogged Wouldn't a minute in her life. Wouldn't someone have seen him? I don't like her her thought process, but she states that the prosecutor believes he had a key, let himself in, Garrett saw him, a scuffle ensued, and he was murdered. But again, what's the motive? That he wants to get back with Tandy? That's the only motive? So kill her son? Like, that doesn't make any sense. To get back sense. at her? Right. It doesn't make any sense at all. I, ugh, again, And he had so it. much to lose. And I'm sorry For to sure. say, but she didn't have a whole lot to lose. For sure. I, I mean, totally agree. Aside of like losing her child, that's not what I'm saying. But like, he had a lot of recognition. Right. And had worked really hard on his legacy. So I just don't see how that makes sense. And to throw it away. Over that. Over a woman that, I don't know, and to kill her son. Like, why would he go to that extent? It, it, he never shows that type of anger at all. Not at all. I mean, not even during the trial. I mean, everything that happened, he was always like, let's just make sure that the truth comes out. Like, yep. I'm not going to be angry about it. Like, nothing's going to, like, he just doesn't seem like that type of person. No. So, yeah. Nick stated that he was at his home from approximately 4.55 to 5.15, which would have made sense if he was at Ian's house at 5.21. Yeah. Okay, he would have easily been able to make it to his house in six minutes. Yeah. And his daughter was home. So she right. was there with him. Right. Now, Mary Rain was relentless when questioning Shana Kay. Same questions multiple times as we talked about. They will say the same question, but word it a little bit differently to see if you give a different response, yep. right? Her story always stayed the same. So she was kind of annoyed by it. And she almost felt like she was like being badgered by her, you know, like. I would say so. Can you just stop? Like you're asking me the same question and you're asking me it multiple times for no reason. <laughs> Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? <laughs> <laughs> Because of this questioning against Shana Kay, we get some on-screen text that states that in October of 2014, the judge dismisses the indictment against Nick Hillary, citing prosecutorial misconduct. Yep. <laughs> I'm like, that's what you get, Mary. God, shut your mouth. What is wrong with you? Seriously, she's like a bully. She is. Yes, we learned that at the end of the documentary. She is. Yeah, she's she a is a bully. Yep. We next see some more on-screen text that says on February 2nd of 2015, District Attorney Mary Rain convenes another grand jury. Nick Hillary is indicted for the second time. Of course he is. She claims that the evidence had been sufficient the whole time, but she was told that she had basically did it wrong the first time. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, she was slapped on the wrist and given a second chance. Her presentation never changed when she presented it to the grand jury because she said that that was all perfect the way it yeah, was. Yeah. The information was there. It was just her presentation sucked. Yeah. She was horrible. Yeah. Now, the district attorney has 30 days before the trial date to hand over all evidence. So any video, any yep. written testimony, anything. They have 30 days to get it in prior to the trial. Because, again, we know that both sides have to have enough time to review all of the evidence before they can state their cases. Right. You can't hold anything back. Because it's not fair. No, it's not fair. And this has to be a fair trial. Of course. Now, Manai Tafari says that the prosecutors don't want to solve this case. They simply want a conviction, which, right. I mean, I'm 100% in agreement with him. They because don't even try to look outside of the box. 
Yeah, well, they're getting so much heat from the town and the community. That's all they care about. Yep. That's the thing that we've been talking about since the beginning. They had these blinders on from the beginning. They just needed to convict him, even though every bit of evidence is circumstantial that they have. They have nothing concrete that pins him to this murder. But they didn't care. No, nope. they didn't care that they were doing this to an innocent person. It's just ugh, it's, it's so infuriating. So infuriating. Yeah. Now, Natasha Haverty, that reporter, even says that any time that news broke about this and they were posting it like online, they would have to shut down the comments yeah. section almost immediately yeah. because of how many vicious comments people were writing. We see that all the time. Uh, all the time. On any post. It doesn't matter what it is. No, it doesn't people matter. People can share something that they didn't even write. Yep. And they'll get prosecuted on their comments and shamed and everything else. It's horrible. I oh, mean, yeah. you really have to be careful what you post nowadays. And it's sad. It's really sad. Oh, yeah. Those keyboard warriors, they're literally yep. just out for blood <laughs> yes, all are. the time. I'm like, get a fucking job, <laughs> get a life, get a hobby, yeah. get off the fucking internet. Right. And how about live a real life? Right. I don't know. Outside of whatever little bubble you're living in. Yeah, the social media bubble. Ugh, gross. Now, W.T. Eckert comes on and he says that he remembers leaving one of the hearings and a Knicks supporter says, kind of yells out, why haven't we heard more about John Jones? And Eckert is like, that was the first time he'd even heard the name. Seriously, I'm screaming right now. Yes. Why hasn't his name ever gotten brought up? Oh, I forgot. It's because he's a part of the police department. That's why he's never gotten brought up. Yep. And Mary's constantly defending him. Like, I know for a fact he didn't do it. Oh, you do? Yeah. Do oh, you know him personally? Really? Yeah. Interesting, because you've never actually looked into him. Right. So, interesting. Very interesting. And Eckert goes on to say that allegations of John being an angry, racist guy, and that the love of his life was sleeping with this black man in town— like, all of this was, like, right. new to him, mm -hmm. but it wasn't new to other people. And that made me think, like, oh, my God, did John Jones frame Nick? Like, was this his way to frame Nick and get Tandy back? Yeah. Or not even get Tandy back, but just make sure that she wasn't with him, right? Yeah. I wouldn't put it past him. It sounds terrible, but he, I think he's a horrible human being. Yeah. And he, even if he didn't commit the murder, I feel like he would have easily have tried to frame Nick in any way. Anyway. And he was immediately with Tandy. Yep. Sitting with her in her first interview. Holding hands. Yeah. And they're so not together. Cute. They're not. He was dating someone else at the time. Yep. Hmm. Interesting. I know. Are you fascinated by true crime like us? If so, check out our podcast, Crime Divers, hosted by me, Jill. And me, Laura. Look out for new episodes every Tuesday when we discuss true crime from around the world. So what are you waiting for? Come join us as we dive in. So interesting enough, we see that 10 months before Garrett died, it was on January 23rd of 2011, there was... A formal complaint written by Tandy Cyrus. Yes. So I took this verbatim written off of the screen. So it said, quote, I, Tandy Cyrus, write to make a formal complaint against Mr. John E. Jones Jr. John has been acting in various ways that cause fear for the safety of myself and my sons. Interesting. Oh, but what does John say? John says 
that when he is told about this complaint by his boss, he says immediately, well, this wasn't in Tandy's words, to which I wrote, duh, it's a formal complaint. She probably had somebody, she she gave her statement right. to maybe a lawyer, right? and they wrote it up. And John goes on to say, basically, that it was too smart for her to have written. Oh, the my fucking God. arrogance. I so he goes after him. her fucking intelligence. Yep. Like, fuck off. She's and, just dumb. Yep. Like, and she would never, she would never write this. It was even typed. I'm like, of course it's typed. It's a f- you're not gonna fucking write a handwritten letter for a formal complaint. Like, Ugh. you should know that, John. You work in fucking the police department. You work with investigators. Like, you should know this shit. Like reports aren't handwritten. Oh, I just because he is, he just thinks he's just so matter of fact with everything he says. Like he knows everything. We're all dumb. Like we don't see behind his stupid, dumbass smiles and remarks. I'm like, fuck you, John Jones. Like, I know you are the worst. I know he's just such a misogynistic pig. Yes, he is. Yeah. Now, Manai Tafari points out that there had been threatening text messages referenced in this formal complaint that at one point John had sued Tandy in small claims court as retaliation for dating Nick Hillary. <laughs> uh, what? Why was all of this completely skipped over? Yep. He, he would have never done it. But it's like, look at their fucking history. Are you kidding me? That alone is enough motive to do this. Right. Nick didn't even have that much stuff as a motive. But you're going after him, guns blazing, and you can't even look at John Jones because he's a part of the police department. And that's going to give you guys a bad look, isn't it? Yep. That's going to really look bad on the Potsdam Police Department if one of their own is committing murders. Well, and that's the thing. You've got to protect your own, right? Right. Yep. Right. Manaya is then listening to a recording of a phone call from John Jones to dispatch the night of the murder, basically at like 6.15 p.m., Asking dispatch who it was that responded to the call and if they were still at the Cyrus residence. First of all, why would it matter who responded? That to me was like, and weird. would they give that information to anyone else if it was just a normal person calling in that wasn't an employee of the police department? Would they give all this information out? I don't know. I mean, I, it, it, I believe it's public, but who knows? It seems I didn't like it. It seems like he's trying to get information to see what they know, see what they figured out, see if one of his friends was the one that got there because he didn't even know who Officer Wentworth was. Yeah. Like he was literally like, who? Wait, what? Like he had no clue who he was. I'm like, this motherfucker. I know. He is trying. He is trying his hardest to insert himself in this investigation to figure out what's going on, what they know. And since he's so close to these people, they're all like, oh, yeah, just John. We'll well, just we can tell him. him. We can tell him. Yeah. Oh, I hate it. I know. I hate, I hate it, it so too. much. Because we know that John was with Tandy at the hospital. He had driven her there, that they spent the night together that night, and then were together at the police station the very next morning. Right. Holding her hand. And Natasha Haverty, that reporter, says that, it seemed really strange. And she thought, you know, we need to be talking more about John Jones. He was very helpful in the investigation, apparently. Even Mark Murray goes on to say that he was super cooperative, provided a DNA sample, fingerprints, and even did body photographs. And to which I wrote, but not nude ones. No. Manai says, as he's looking through the computer of the evidence, because again, all of this had to be provided, he says, you don't see a single face shot, 
of John Jones. (sighs) You can clearly see he still has all of his clothes on. They're taking photos of his arms and like, you know, palm down and then palm up. Like they want to see both the underside of your arm and the top side of your arm. Because again, they're looking for scratches or anything that would indicate where that DNA could have came from and or maybe any type of injury that could have occurred from him jumping from the window, right? Because that was how they suspect this person left. And you can clearly see that his sleeves are just rolled up for his ankles and his legs. His shoes are off, his socks are off, but his pants are just rolled up to his knee. At no point is he ever nude and That's the fucking worst. None of it is identifiable. You wouldn't know who the hell you were looking nope. at, except for the fact that the like JPEG file said Jones on <sighs> it. Well, it's all messy here. It's all messy because John Jones is a part of this police department. He's sitting across from his friend Mark Murray. He's in the first fucking interview with Tandy. He spends the moments after Garrett dies with Tandy the entire time for like almost two days. Why is that not suspicious to anyone? They're not together anymore. He has a separate girlfriend. They had a very bad breakup, right? Like, it was not an amicable breakup. Like, things were bad. And And there's, like, reports of it. And, yeah, exactly. Like, evidence that it was bad. And now they're holding hands and they're, it's fucking messy. It's really, really messy and should be looked at. And that's what Natasha had stated. Like, it needed to be looked at and it never was. Never was. We now get to the deposition of Mark Murray for Nick's civil case on February 4th of 2014. Manai asks him, why did you take any pictures of John Jones? And Mark states, pretty much just to substantiate that we did take pictures of people besides Nick Hillary. I wanted to scream. I know. And he said, and just to rule out the possibility that he had injuries consistent with that as well. I'm like... That is so fucking corrupt. You literally just made us realize that you're a piece of shit and that you guys are doing something shady. Like, that is fucked up beyond belief. You see those photos side by side of what John Jones had to deal with and what Nick Hillary had to deal with? It's fucking horrendous. Night and day. Oh, my God. It's horrible. Yeah. Now, Natasha Haverty tells us that this deposition was a treasure trove. It was all public documents, so anyone could go in and see what happened during this deposition, right? Yeah, it was all written, too. And this was for both sides, so on the Hillary's side as well as on the police, on the Potsdam police's side, too. Right. Mark Murray was also asked, what's the biggest factor connecting Mr. Hillary to this homicide? And he answers with his disdain for Garrett Phillips. That was the biggest factor contributing to him being charged with second-degree murder and spending the rest of his life in prison. Oh, my God. Right there. They don't have any fucking evidence. They have nothing that actually connects him to the murder besides their thoughts that he doesn't like Garrett. Well, and that's the thing. Where's your fucking proof that he had this disdain for Garrett Phillips, that he hated this child to his fucking core? Like, show me that. Show me anywhere. I know. I know. It's, It's so horrible. Ed Tischler also stated that since 1990, he had never witnessed or heard of anyone being photographed nude at the Potsdam Police Department. Huh. So that Weird. just goes to show they are trying to make Nick break down. Yep. And break him down mentally, really. Yeah. Mark even said that the latent prints didn't seem to match with anyone that they had tested so far. 
Interesting. Again, his prints were tested twice and they could not be identified as belonging to the person who had hurt Garrett, right? So let's keep beating a dead horse, though. Like that should be the end of the fucking story, but it's not. Nope. Now, Natasha says that she had actually published a radio story that included John Jones, but made sure that she got out of town when it aired. She made sure to point out the multiple people stating that there was no DNA evidence. And this is when it started to get national coverage and everyone was asking the question, what role has race played in this case? And we see just clips of all these different news stations from all over the United States asking, like, is this really why he's being charged with this? Is this a racially charged case? Well, and she also mentions that, you know, interesting that the first theory overall was that this was potentially kids just being too rowdy. And interestingly enough, whose fingerprints aren't on a local database or any database? Kids. Right, right. Why didn't they just go fingerprint the whole fucking school? I don't know. Like, why did they not do anything like that? Again, I I think they were just so blinded by the fact that they needed now to convict Nick Hillary yeah. because that is where their story started and they didn't want to look bad. No, you know they what didn't I mean? want to. Yeah, they did not want to about face on that at all. No, absolutely not. We get some more on-screen text that states, Sarah Johnson, a St. Lawrence University trustee, helped fund Nick Hillary's legal expenses, which is fucking awesome. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah. Now, Nick's new attorneys were Earl Ward and Norman Siegel out of New York City. We get some more on-screen text that states, while Lisa Markosha and Manai Tafari continue to work on Nick Hillary's civil suit, Norman Siegel and Earl Ward join his local defense team to handle the criminal charges. We see Peter Dumas, who was also a part of his local defense team, and he says that people felt really passionately about this case. As we know, this was like the biggest thing to hit their town in forever, and it's a child, right? I mean, people get pissed off. Exactly. And some of which were his friends, and they don't talk to him anymore. Yeah, they didn't like the fact that they that he was going to be defending someone that they all thought committed the murder of a twelve year old boy. Yep, again, guilty until proven innocent. Exactly. Now we see an update report on Garrett's case, and Mary Rain says that DNA evidence points the finger directly at accused killer Nick Hillary. I. Seriously want to bitch slap her because I don't <laughs> think she understands what the fuck she's even saying. I I know. It's like you've tested his DNA twice, but now all of a sudden it's now linked to him. Really? Yep. Really? Yep. Oh, yeah. It never matches, but it points the finger directly at him. Yep. Lisa and Manai come back and they say that Mark Murray testified under oath that there was no DNA, no fingerprint match, no eyewitness, and basically no case. Yep. Everything that they had was circumstantial, and that's it. Then years and years later, when Fitzpatrick comes on the case, there's all of a sudden a DNA match. Yeah. Something's fishy here. Yep. We see some on-screen text that says District Attorney William Fitzpatrick orders another analysis of the DNA results using a software this time called STR Mix. Now, the DNA mixture was a partial profile of an individual that was more likely to be Nick Hillary than a random stranger is what they came up with. And I'm like, how? What? How? They don't even say anything to the effect of the 
profile suggests African-American descent. Like they don't say anything like that. So there's nothing in my mind that convinces me that that is the the case. It's it's so it's reaching and I don't (laughs) like it. No. Well, they were even stating that it it was literally like they were trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. And they They just bashed it to the point until it finally fit. Right. Yep. There's more on-screen text that says that the judge holds a pretrial hearing to assess the admissibility of this new DNA report. Because, mm-hmm. again, remember, this is the third time now it's been tested. Right. And let me remind you, this was a, quote-unquote, minuscule amount of DNA found under these fingernails. Seriously. How many times can this shit be tested? Yeah, and how how can you still trust it after it's already been tested multiple times? How can you still trust this DNA and what the results are anymore? Because I've heard in cases before that a lot of times they'll be like, yeah, we tested the sample and now there is no there's sample not, there's left. There's nothing left. Yeah. So how do they keep coming up with this? I don't, I don't like it. I don't, I don't like it. Jesse McKinley from the New York Times goes on to say that, you know, DNA has this like reputation of being infallible, but it's not the case. No, it's not. I mean, I always thought it was, you know, I'm just watching CSI and all the shows growing up. Are you telling me that that's not true? (laughs) I mean, you just think that that is a flawless science, that there's there's no wrong to it. Yeah, there's no room for error. Exactly. But again, science is learning things. A lot of it is not concrete yet. Right. Right. Reports state that the trial was scheduled for September 6th in Canton. And that the DNA test results will not be allowed. So we find out through some more on-screen text that while STR mix has been accepted in several states since 2015, Judge Felix Cantina rules the STR mix report is not admissible in this case because the sample size is so small and the lab that handled the DNA was not an STR mix validated facility. So it just smells of shadiness. I yes. mean, all of it. You're not even getting this tested at a lab that specializes in this specific type of DNA analysis. Like, what? Why cut corners now? Oh, oh my gosh. I, I think it's because they wanted to get the answer they were looking for. Yeah. It wasn't about if it was valid or not. I, no. I think they just wanted to hear that they could pinpoint that they were something. Right. Yeah. On Nick. Totally. Totally. So Nick's team decides again to use Shayna Kay as a witness. Again, some on-screen text says that Nick Hillary moves his family out of Potsdam the summer before the trial, which I was like, why did it take you so long? Like we mentioned earlier. Like it's about time. Yeah, but he finally does. He moves to Donellan, New Jersey. And this is all for his kids. I mean, like we mentioned, these kids are growing up Mm -hmm. in all of this. And they don't, I'm sorry, they don't need to be subjected to all of the cruelty that I'm sure is being brought upon them. No, I mean, but we do see how he really is a wonderful dad. Yeah. He loves his kids. He shows love to his kids, you and know? And they love him. Yes. So it's not even like he could be doing this for the camera because kids aren't that good at acting. Well, no, and they don't care. I mean, they don't even no. care about the cameras, right? No, they don't. Now, Potsdam obviously wants answers. They want to put this to rest. The jury selection in, in this trial would be Really tough, though. How 
is that acceptable? I don't it think it is. Not be, it should like, have been moved somewhere else like they do with other sure, high profile cases. Miles and miles away. Like, or even to another state. Seriously. I mean, that's just not fair. It's, it's not. not a fair trial at all. Not at all. And they said that at this time, they summoned over 100 people to try to make up this jury of 12 that they would need. Now, this was all happening like five years later. Who wouldn't have heard of this at this point? Right. It would have gotten around for sure. In Everybody the knows it. Nick decides at the last minute with quite a bit of hand wringing and sweating from his legal defense team that he wants to waive the jury trial completely yep. and go right to a bench trial. Yep. On-screen text tells us that a bench trial is a trial without a jury and the judge is the sole decider of the verdict. So basically, you better hope that you're getting somebody who can take on both sides of the story and objectively make a decision. You know, and I I think he made the right decision. I agree. Because of them allowing the jury pool to be from Potsdam, he was never getting a fair trial, ever no. getting one. Well, and they even found out afterwards that one of the jurors that had been selected was friends with the Phillips family. Oh, I, I hated that. And then even Mary Rain said that she knew one of them. And so she's like, oh, that he wouldn't be biased and, and he'd make a really good juror. I'm like, that should be a reason that makes him ineligible. Exactly. He shouldn't know a damn fucking person personally that is associated with this case. Are you kidding me? I know. I didn't like it. It's just far too connected For in sure. such a small area. We're now at September 12th of 2016. This is day one of the People versus Oral Nicholas Hillary. Now, W.T. Eckert tells us that it felt like a dream, like they couldn't believe that this trial was actually happening. It, yeah. it felt very weird. Yeah, five and years in the making. For sure. And Felix Katina would be presiding. The prosecutor, William Fitzpatrick, was asking the judge, you know, keep an open mind. He wanted to create a new narrative than what had been originally talked about, that, you know, there was no case, that this was racially motivated. He wanted to really make a new case as to why Nick Hillary did this crime. Sure. Now, the defense says that from day one, the case focused almost exclusively on Nick Hillary. Police found no fingerprints, no hairs, or no fibers linking Nick to the crime, which is 100% true. Day right. two, Nick was their prime suspect, and they never looked back. Yep. I mean, the day after he died. So not even a full day because right. they went to his house at like 8 a.m. or yeah. 9 a.m. So it hadn't even been a full day. Nick Hillary was the main suspect and was the person who did this crime. Yep. In their eyes. In their eyes, of course. So William Fitzpatrick tells us that their most conclusive piece of evidence that they had towards Nick's guilt was that school gym camera. Oh, yeah. And the fact that he turns left because he's quote unquote, hunting Garrett Phillips. Like, oh my God. I mean, I the theatrics here. I mean, he's really laying it on thick with these theatrics and the judge. I'm telling you. Okay. He's taking it to another level. I mean, speaking of theatrics, we've all seen Home Alone 1 and Home Alone 2. And that part where Kevin is using like that movie in the background to make it sound like he's the guy behind the door when the pizza man shows yep, up. Yep. And he says, you know, <laughs> Leave it on the doorstep and keep the change, you filthy animal. Yeah. Literally, it's the same <laughs> fucking voice. 
as William Fitzpatrick. I closed my eyes for a minute in the closing statements when he gets super passionate. Yep. Sounds just like oh, him. Oh, I'm going to have to re I'm going to have to rewatch that part. Oh yeah. <laughs> the defense says there will be no evidence of Nick or his vehicle arriving or leaving a Hunter Market Street because he wasn't there. Now we meet Don Tracy. He had actually been hired by Nick's attorneys to find and interview witnesses to find out what they would say at trial. Wouldn't being a private investigator oh, be so it, fun? It would be cool. I think I would be a little nervous, though, and oh, like anxious all the time. So fun. <laughs> so Don learned that the DA was going to fly Andrew Carranza back from Hawaii. He was that other resident who was changing the tire on his vehicle. Yeah. When this all occurred. And... He was a vital witness for them. Now, Don had called Andrew, and immediately, Andrew thought that he worked for the DA's office. He never asked any questions, so Don didn't tell him otherwise. Yeah, why would he volunteer the information he that he never. wasn't? I he wouldn't. would never. Uh-uh. Now, he was going to testify that he saw a black guy on the second floor that fit Nick's description. Yep. Now, Don got a hold of Shannon, who was his girlfriend at the time, so Andrew's girlfriend, and stopped over to talk to her. Because he wanted to see if their stories still matched up, right? Now, both her and Andrew were asked by police the next day after the murder if they had seen anybody in the window or any movement, and they both said no. Right, because remember, they were directly below that window, changing that tire for like a good amount of time. Like the only place he would have came out, they would have seen. But remember, there was only that minute time frame between when they went in and the perpetrator jumped out. Right. Don told Shannon that Andrew was giving a different story. And she tells him Andrew called her and she recorded the conversation. (laughs) I'm like, what a quick thinker. I like her. She immediately knew something was fishy. So she's like, nope, I'm going to record your ass to make sure that you don't tell people I'm lying about what you said. Well, and that she can also show Don, like, no, this is exactly what he said to me. Exactly. Gosh, I, I love this chick. I know. She tells Andrew, I'm not lying for you. And Andrew basically states she wouldn't be lying since she doesn't remember anything. Oh, my God. It brought me right back to John Jones saying that Tandy was too fucking yeah. dumb to have written those uh, words. I'm just like, what is with all the guys in this town thinking all the chicks are dumb? I know. It's it's horrible. And now stating he saw someone but couldn't make out who it was because he was black. We're now at the home of Sarah Johnson and Greg Cornell. And we're in Canton, New York. They are clearly wealthy people. Yeah. We see that there's this like dining room table that is literally like a slab of wood that's been polished and it's it's gorgeous, but a very expensive table. Yeah. They have candelabras. They have these elaborate paintings on the wall. I'm like, wow. I know. I thought they were in a museum for a second. <laughs> it didn't look real. It, like they're actually in like a sitting room. It, it was interesting. But Don calls the team because this is where all of Nick's defense team is. And they're all eating dinner at Sarah and Greg's house. Now, Sarah was the one that had helped fund his defense team. Okay, right? Yeah, she was a trustee for the university. Correct. That he went to. Correct. And Don tells them what he discovered about Andrew and Shannon. So the next day at the trial, Don Tracy bumped into Dan Maynard from the DA's office and he knew Don had spoke with Andrew and asked him why he was speaking to his witness. And then Don goes, why did you bring him here from Hawaii to testify to something that's not true? 
And Dan says, I have rules to follow. I have people I'm responsible to. Then there's some on-screen text that says that Dan Maynard declined to be interviewed, but he denies that this conversation took place. And Fitzpatrick tells us that nobody interviewed him prior to him flying in. Bullshit. Bull. Why would you fly him in then? There's no way you would pay to fucking fly his ass back home from Hawaii. Do you know how expensive those tickets are? Give me a goddamn break. Yeah. Yeah. Give me a break. We then see on screen text that says on the stand, Andrew Carranza testified that he saw a figure peeking out of the window. But District Attorney William Fitzpatrick did not ask him for a description. Well, isn't that interesting? Hmm. Weird. Fitzpatrick goes on to say that ethically, he couldn't have Andrew state the description of the man because it didn't sound credible right. to him when he even spoke to him about it. <laughs> right. Why the fuck is he there? I don't understand it. Shannon already says that Andrew was full of shit. Yeah. And he just went ahead and, you know, went on with his. It's like, why? Why do that? Like, you have nothing to gain or lose here. Right. Why don't just tell the truth? Like, what is wrong with people? And what is we already have it on record that you said you saw nothing. Exactly. Exactly. And why are you changing your story? Yep. It doesn't make any sense. No. Pete Dumas from Nick's legal team comes back and says that all of a sudden there is this new potential witness that pops up known as Gregory Brown. And Dumas is basically stating to the judge that the prosecution interviewed this Gregory Brown and never supplied the interview to them, (laughs) which is like a big no-no, right? We have to share evidence. You could see the judge immediately look over to the prosecution like, hmm, really? There's evidence that they haven't seen that you guys did something? And Fitzpatrick is like, hands up. I didn't know. He didn't know. Yeah. You could tell. (laughs) But Mary Rain, she looked a bit sheepish. Yeah. Yeah. So the judge pulls all of counsel into his chambers and two pages are handed out to everybody. The two pages stating that John Jones had entered 100 Market Street approximately 15 minutes before Garrett Phillips enters 100 Market Street that night. This is all stated from Gregory Brown, who is an inmate at one of the jails nearby. Apparently, John Jones knew Greg from playing football together. However, when asked about it a little bit later, John says he doesn't know the guy. But somebody reminds him like, John, remember you used to be a bouncer at that one establishment in town and you knew this guy as G-Money? And John goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I knew that guy. I weird. I feel like he's just a fucking liar. I feel he's like an everything idiot. he's saying to the camera is a fucking lie. I hate listening to him talk. I know me, too, because it's just like uh, I can smell bullshit, man. Yep. I don't know who you think you're fooling. Yep. But you stink. <laughs> <laughs> we then see some like text brought out from this typed up interview, I guess, between Greg Brown. And it says, quote, Brown believes that Jones was the killer, but he never mentions it to Jones, which I mean, I don't see why that would be weird. I probably wouldn't be like, you're the killer to a cop. You would never say that. No. Brown then goes on to say in this document something to the effect of how he couldn't believe that a black man 
would kill somebody in Potsdam, jump from a second story window and be completely unseen. Yep. It's in the middle of the day. It would have been seen by someone, but a white police officer that people know in town would probably never think twice about it. I wouldn't. No. And it's sad to say that, but that is the truth of the matter here. Well, think about in your own neighborhood. You know and recognize people, right? Right. So if somebody random is walking past your house or running past your house, Mm -hmm. you might take notice to that. For sure. Now, again, we were talking about Fitzpatrick being really shocked at this, like, admittance of this interview between Mm -hmm. Greg Brown and he didn't know anything about it. And he says basically that Mary Rain, upon like suddenly remembering, oh, yeah, I remember that guy, decided that it just didn't sound credible enough. So she made this executive decision not to include it into evidence. You can't do that, though. No. Like, it's not your choice. If you did an interview and it could somehow help the defense, all evidence, even if it's the tiniest bit of evidence and or whatever you have, Everyone needs to know what you have. Yep. You know what I mean? And Fitzpatrick says he almost packed up all of his shit at that moment and left. (laughs) I love that. I know. know. Because it just goes to show that he now, I mean, he doesn't believe a shit in word she says. Well, and it's making his reputation look bad. Like, he is being a shady prosecutor. And he said that that is not how I do things. Yep. Like, I always give up every single piece of evidence that I have, every single interview I've done. We give all that information because we want it to be a fair trial, right? Yeah. And it pissed him off that he had no idea about this. Agreed. So immediately after, we see the defense team take off. They're heading to jail because they're going to speak with Greg Brown. They want to hear from the horse's mouth what was said. Right. Now we get some on-screen text that says, after a 90-minute interview with Gregory Brown, the defense decides against calling him to testify as a witness. Now, Martati says that there's no way it was John Jones. He was caught on camera walking his dog at that time, and his DNA was not found at the scene. Okay, hold up. Why is this the first time we're fucking hearing that? Uh, Why are we... All of this shit that has to do with John Jones, we're just now finding out about it. It's like, he is a way better suspect, way better suspect than Nick was, but no one wanted to go after him. Like, it's so fucking frustrating. Well, and honestly, it kind of makes me, like, question the documentary crew. Why was none of this brought up earlier? I I didn't like that, to be completely honest. Maybe they were trying to keep us in the dark a little bit. Obviously. I don't know. Now, the defense states that right after John Jones pulls into his driveway, Garrett rides by on his ripstick, and it's caught all on camera. Right. Now, it's a coincidence with John Jones, but it's not a coincidence with Nick Hillary. He turned left, so that's not a coincidence. But for this scenario, it is. He states, John Jones, former boyfriend of Tandy, John Jones, who didn't like Nick Hillary, John Jones, who once pushed Tandy, John Jones, who had sued Tandy. 
I love, I, I loved, it was so powerful. And then it pans over to John Jones, who's in the courtroom, yep. watching all this happening. Biting his fucking nails. Yes, he is. <laughs> the defense says that you have to look at all the testimonies, depositions, statements, etc., and put together a really powerful closing argument. That is the last statement that you get to give and give your message to basically all in one fail swoop. Now we start to hear the closing arguments between defense and prosecution. Now, generally, this would be told to the jury, but in this case, it's being told directly to the judge. So Earl Ward, in his closing, says that the prosecution is basically painting a picture of Nick Hillary being this psychopath, this extremely jealous ex-boyfriend who takes the life of his ex-girlfriend's son basically to get back at her for having this breakup. He says that they've stitched together pieces and have called it evidence through this entire case. Yep. Pan to Tandy Cyrus looking really annoyed and pissed off sitting there in the courtroom. Yes, she was. And Earl Ward goes on to say that this is not in any way, shape or form beyond a reasonable doubt in favor of Nick Hillary committing this crime, which is what you need to give him a second-degree murder charge. Right, exactly. We then hear William Fitzpatrick giving his closing statements, and he says that there are two possible explanations, that Nick is a victim in this entire thing and that he's completely innocent, or that obsessed by a breakup with his ex-girlfriend, he kills her son out of rage. He also goes on to say that all of the tapes of Nick Hillary driving left and not right, quote-unquote, prove it. Of course. He says that Nick was too controlling of a man, and all Garrett wanted to do was to play with his friends and to not be dictated. That doesn't even come into play for me at this point. I'm like, what? This narrative is so far-fetched to me. I, I can't believe any of this bullshit. I get it. Some things don't look great. Right. They don't look great, but you have nothing else on him for the fact that one of the biggest pieces of evidence for you is that he turns left out of the parking lot. He even put himself in that parking lot for you. Yep. Do you think he would do that if he actually did this crime? Like it does not make sense. It doesn't. And to be completely honest, you guys, I am paraphrasing what the prosecution has said at this point because he's so theatrical And passionate about his words. I mean, he is truly like recreating this crime in such a horrific sense of words that Tandy is literally crying. I mean, he's crying. Right. And he's crying. Yes. Through the whole thing. They're both choked up. After both of the closing statements, Judge Cantina goes on to say that this is going to take about a week or so for them to come up with a verdict. So on-screen text tells us that Nick Hillary and his defense team return home to wait for the verdict. We see some footage of Nick at home with his kids. Then more on-screen text that says the judge has reached a verdict and Nick Hillary needs to be in Potsdam tomorrow to appear in court. Natasha Haverty goes on to say that even if he is cleared of all of this nonsense, his name is ruined. His family is in debt. And no reparations will ever be given to him and his family over what has happened to him. Well, no, his name is now forever tied to being a murderer. Yep. Again, like you stated, the things that go on the Internet, they never go away. No, they don't. You know, so 
that's I think the hardest part for him is is moving forward and rebuilding, you know, like everything in his whole life, his whole legacy is shot out the window. No one gives a shit anymore. Yep. Everyone thinks he's a murderer that got away with it. Yep. You know, and it's it's horrible and so sad. I know. We're now at September 28th of 2016 and we're at the verdict and we see a ton of news crews that are ready outside the courtroom along with police. I put a fuck ton of law enforcement. Wow. Really interesting. And there maybe, was so many. I think it was because of just the How charged it was. Yeah, the hostility and the two sides. I mean, it was not something that was going to be good. Right. right? It right. was it, it could get out of hand pretty quickly. Yeah. We see Jesse McKinley again and he says that you can look at it two ways. Nick Hillary did this and has managed to somehow convey he's innocent this whole time and yep. really believe it himself, or that someone else did this and somehow entered the apartment and strangled Garrett for no apparent reason and was never heard from again. Either one is really frightening. Yeah, it is. I mean, if you look at it, it's been so many years now, and if it really was some random person, where the hell are they? How would they ever know how to find this person, right? It, it is scary. Now, Judge Felix Katina comes in and states, The case against the defendant is entirely based upon circumstantial evidence. Accordingly, it is the judgment of this court that as to the charge of murder in the second degree as charged in the indictment, the defendant, Oral Nicholas Hillary, is found not guilty. Wow. So he got an acquittal. Oh. Nick is bawling. Oh, uncontrollably he is so relieved i mean everyone's crying on garrett's side i mean tandy is hyperventilating in her chair absolutely brian phillips looks like he's about to take the place down yep and mary rain states that there will be no further investigation into this case because she is a hundred percent certain nick hillary is the murderer she's such garbage she is and when someone is acquitted They can never be charged for that crime ever again. Right. It's called double jeopardy. Never again they can be charged with that. So I I don't like Mary Rain. No. Now, Nick says his main focus is to get back to some sort of normalcy. Like we said, that's going to be really hard for him. Yeah. It's really hard to go back to to normalcy after you've been charged with murder. I feel like he should have to move over to the West Coast. Yeah. You know, completely away. Start a new life. Start a new identity. Move on. Mm hmm. But that's sad that he would have to do that. Yeah. Right. But I, I honestly think that's what you would have to do. Yeah. I mean, if I was him, that's what I would want to do. Yeah. There was this one part where we see Nick Hillary go home mm-hmm. and one of his younger sons comes to the door as he's walking in and we hear him say, why are you so dressed up from the meeting? And that like just touched my heart yeah. so much because, you know, he has kept all of this from his younger kids. He doesn't want them to feel any sort of sadness or fear. I mean, that just really tugged at my heartstrings because he literally was just telling his kids that, you know, he's going to a work meeting. Yep. He's going, he's, you know, he has to be away for a few days and they, they wouldn't know any difference, you yeah. know? And I just, that really touched me a bit. Yeah. The one that's a little bit older, I would say he's probably around like, you know, preteen age before Nick takes off for the verdict. I mean, He's saying to his dad, like, what's going to happen? Like, because he obviously knows a yes, little bit more. Of course. And I just remember one point Nick says to him, like, just remember, no matter what, what's the rule? And he says, 
don't cry. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, oh, man. Yeah. Nick broke his rule. He bawled like a baby. Yes, he did. <laughs> but in a good way. Yeah. We see some on-screen text that states, Nick Hillary filed a second civil rights lawsuit against the village of Potsdam. The case is pending. He is now coaching club soccer. Tandy Cyrus raises money for after-school programs in Garrett's memory. In June 2018, Mary Rain was barred from practicing law in New York for two years for severe and persistent misconduct. Fuck you, Mary. (laughs) She sucks. She sucks. She's terrible. The last on-screen text we see is in March of 2019, the new district attorney, Gary Pasqua, said police were reviewing new leads in the Garrett Phillips murder investigation, which is considered an ongoing case. So we still don't have an answer. We don't have an answer. It makes me a little happy that it's still an ongoing Ongoing. case and it's still open and it's not closed because Mary Rain said there's no one else that could have done it. Like, I'm glad that someone new came in, fresh eyes, fresh take on the case. Hopefully they'll be able to solve it sooner than later. Agreed. So obviously we never do find out who actually killed Garrett Phillips in this documentary. And in my opinion, the name itself of the documentary is misleading. But again, that's, of course, my opinion. (laughs) I think this is just another example of how small-minded individuals can be willing to die on certain mountains just because they, quote-unquote, feel that they're right. Yeah. Hashtag Mary Rain, you suck. (laughs) (laughs) We should make that go trending. (laughs) Yes. Hashtag Mary Rain, you suck. (laughs) Now, don't forget to tune in next week. We are going to be covering the HBO documentary Thought Crimes, The Case of the Cannibal Cop. This one is interesting. Yes, I'm excited for this one. I'm excited for this one, too. It's a one-parter, so you won't be left in suspense on this one. (laughs) In the meantime, feel free to join us on Facebook. We have our Sheer Crime podcast discussion group out there. Join it. We're sharing memes. We're updating about new episodes. We're also asking for your requests on there. And it's just overall kind of a fun time. I love it. Yeah. You can join our Instagram at Sheer underscore crime underscore podcast we have a twitter which is at sheer crime pod go ahead and tweet us that's right retweet us (laughs) all of the tweeting and twittering that goes on in twitter land (laughs) and of course we have our email that is set up for any requests that you may have or maybe you just want to share something with us yeah so that is requests at sheer crime podcast.com if you can take a moment to go out there on itunes Rate and review us. Yes, please. We're getting so many cool reviews. Yes, I Um, love it. Me too. In fact, I just wanted to share this little, I guess, review that we got, but it was a personal. It was sent personally to me in my messenger. So nice. Yeah. Now, this is from my friend Kyle. We grew up in the same hometown. And he stopped by on Monday night in my inbox and said, quote, Hey, just wanted to drop you a line and say, started listening to your podcast after I seen that you post about it on Facebook. I came into it thinking I will give it a listen, but didn't have that high of expectations being that it's small media, so to speak. Then I listened and hot damn, I was blown away. (laughs) Sound quality is great. Content is great. The flow is great. Chemistry is great. The openness and expression of feelings is awesome. You ladies are doing a fantastic job. I hope you keep it up and keep growing it. Keep kicking ass with these podcasts. (laughs) I'm a keep listening. (gasps) 
I'm, I I'm getting, loved it. I'm getting goosebumps right now. <laughs> it was awesome. It was so cool. We went on to message back and forth a little bit more. But yeah, so I just wanted to share that. So thank you, Kyle. If you could go out on iTunes and put something similar, <laughs> you know. We'd really we'd appreciate We'd really it. appreciate it. It helps us be seen. Other than that, we're going to cut it off for now. We will see you next week on Wednesday. In the meantime, have a good one. And remember, never run with scissors. Bye, guys. See ya. See ya.